I was away last weekend. Thank you for letting me uh, not be here. I took my son camping with some friends. It was his sort of birthday celebration, and it was a great time away, but I'm very thankful to be back to sort of get back into what we're talking about, and that is time. And typically when I plan a sermon series, what I do is I, I have a pretty detailed structure I'm working from, but I always try to make a margin for space in the way that God works around and through my structure. And so today's message is sort of the direct pro- byproduct of some conversations I've had with you about work because we talked about this two weeks ago. And so I thought, since so many of you had, had asked questions about this, uh, especially balancing work and rest, it might be good for us to just add a new message to the series. And so that's what we're going to do today. This series, you might consider, is sort of like audience demand. So many of you are asking about it. And so I'm here to make you happy. I want to deliver on that promise today and share it with you, okay? And so we're going to talk today about finding a balance between work and rest. Two weeks ago, we talked at length about what it means to work. Super important concept in the Bible, something that God really uh, not only requests but commands us to do. And so this, this sermon is obviously a standalone message, meaning you can glean from it on its own. But it certainly would be better to listen to the series in order because they sort of stack upon each other. And so leisure or rest and work is really what I want to talk to you about today. And I want to share with you a story that I shared with you about five years ago when my son, who was about to be 12, was in the seven range, right? And it was sort of funny. It really exemplifies what we're talking about today. And it's sort of a common analogy because it's something that we're probably likely all connect with. So every one of us knows that we live just a few miles from what? The beach, right? At least two of you know that. This is Florida, and we live on the coast. The beach is right around the way. I just had some friends in town two weeks ago for a large church planning conference, and it's amazing how, how much we take that for granted, that we literally can hit the ocean f- with a rock here. I have friends that live in the interior of the country, and it's amazing how, just how marvelous they see the ocean. And so as a result, we tend to go to the beach a lot. That's a lot, what a lot of us do, or at least we appreciate the fact that we have it. And when you go to the beach, especially if you have kids, which I'm still in that season of life, you know, there's two stages to the beach. There's getting ready to go, which is the fun part, and then you go to the beach, obviously. And then there is the coming home part, And what do you have to do after you leave the beach with your kids and all the the stuff you bring down there? You have to wash that stuff, right? Because it is utterly disgusting, especially your kids. They're completely sandified when they come off of the beach. And so there's this two-stage process where you are absolutely enjoying the beach, but there's a ton of work. It's, It's probably the best example of leisure and rest we have here. Ton of work. And so I have a really clear example. It's one of these stories that goes down in the history books of the Orzo family of something that had happened that really, I think, exemplifies what we're talking about today. So when we got back from the beach, you know, my family did what they did. We're all dealing with our stuff. And I talked to my son who was seven at that time. And I said, so we each have a job today to get this stuff squared away. I said, my job is going to be, I'm going to unload all this stuff and I'm going to lay it on the concrete. And then your job is to take all this stuff carry it to the hose, and then once it's all set up, you and me will go ahead and spray all this stuff off. It was a very clear job. I unload, you get the stuff ready to rinse. And so we began the process. Everything looked like it was in order. And the first thing that I handed him was a very big, bright red beach towel, you know, one of those large, oversized beach towels. And I said, carry this to the hose. And so I saw him take it, and I saw him walk towards the hose, and I thought, we're in order, I'll, I'll proceed with the plan. And so I was just, in a very blind way, unloading stuff and throwing it onto the ground. And I noticed after about two minutes that all the stuff I was unloading was becoming a pile of stuff that wasn't being moved. And so I tried to figure out what was going on. Apparently, I thought my son got sidetracked. And so I started looking for him. And I did the first, the obvious thing. I went to the hose first to see where he was, thinking he was there spraying stuff off. And he was not there. And then I started walking around the yard, and I didn't see him. And then I got a little nervous, and I started walking onto the other side of the yard. Keep in mind, there's a big car in between us, so I can't see what he's doing. And that's when I actually saw my son. 
I walked around the driver's side of the car. He was literally five feet away from me the whole time. I had walked around the driver's side of the car from the front, and I saw first a big red towel laying on the ground and my son laying on top of the big red towel, like literally laying out. He was like a little European man of leisure, just sitting there, having a great old time, sunbathing at seven years old, while I was sweating and melting in the heat. And it was pretty obvious to me that we had a very different understanding of what we meant by working and resting. The rest time was over at that point. The work time had begun. And so we had a conversation about that and then you know, moved on and had to clean everything pretty thoroughly for the rest of that afternoon. And so today we're talking at uh, another teaching that layers onto this idea of time, a theology of time. And our work and our rest are two very important things that we spend time on. And so we're going to be looking at a teaching about how our work and rest really shapes life. And I want us to sort of follow the same vein we've had since the beginning of this message series. That is asking whether or not we are applying and living in the wisdom of Jesus according to the scripture based on how we use time. We read today in, from Ephesians again, making, making the most of every moment really sort of recognizing that our moments are numbered and God has great purpose for every single one of them. And then we laid another verse from Ephesians into our teaching today that talks about the, some instruction, if you will, about how we're to use our hands, that we're to be productive and fruitful on earth. And so this is another tool that we'll have in our time toolbox, which helps us to follow Paul's command to regularly evaluate what we do with our time. That is the, the premise of this message series, thinking about what it means to not just do stuff, but to really think proactively based on God's economy about the things we do. To ask if every moment God has given us, we are leveraging for the, gl the glory of his kingdom and for the good of our lives. And so it's no secret that we live in a culture <clears throat> where many people place a high value on work and rest. And sometimes these categories are practiced entirely at the expense of one another. We work without rest or we rest without any meaningful work. And this is often due to the practical fact that those who embrace hard work know that living a productive life can be deeply satisfying and can actually add meaning and value to your life. So if you're a person <coughs> excuse me, who likes to work, then you're going to feel like working is where you need to spend most of your energy, and that's very noble. On the other side of the fence, those who love to rest, well, what I find is people just really enjoy rest. <coughs> they feel like it's an end in and of itself. And so in the Christian faith, it's pretty clear that work and rest both matter to God. They both have a pretty central role in our lives. They are central to the way that he designed the world and our lives. And this is why the Bible has a great deal to say about the importance of working and resting in the Christian life. <clears throat> I'm going to get a sip of water real quick, if that's okay with you. That wasn't for effect. I was just really thirsty, I promise, okay? Today we're going to try to get a better balance about how these two things work together, how we can strike a Christ-centered balance between our rest and our work. And we do this by looking at Ephesians 4 in light of the foundational verses in Ephesians 5. These two things teach us something about how we live, work, and rest. And this leads me to the first truth that I want to share with you today. <clears throat> to properly deal with the busyness problem, you must know God created you and I to work hard and rest well. That's the purpose of these teachings. Work we've been designed for, rest we need. And so when Paul wrote this letter to the people of Ephesus, he was writing to normal people just like you and I. And that's what's beautiful about these truths. We can sort of relegate them into a, sort of like an ancient set of ideas, which is not true. Or we can see that they are actually very practical, very rich teachings that have an immediate application in our life. <clears throat> and I bring this up here because what, what I'm simply trying to say here is, one of the great things about the Bible is that when you and I read it, you will quickly see that many of the struggles we face today were struggles that people faced back then. 
It isn't like the first century world dealt with this stuff, especially when we read the New Testament, and we no longer deal with this stuff. That's a, an argument used to sometimes deny the truth or the reality of the Bible. The Bible is very applicable to people because people have always been people, and people have been working and resting since we have been created. And so this is a common struggle. And what I love about this is those folks, just like us, living in a different time and place, suffered from the same challenges we deal with. And so most of Paul's writings, this is why I really like his writings, they are a roadmap, sort of designed to help people find a sense of meaning, purpose, and worth in life by pointing them to God. Wherever you read Paul's writings, he is taking a, an issue in our world, and he's trying to direct us to a, to a greater way to deal with an issue in our world, and that is to invite the presence of God into our lives. And so he wants us to have peace. He wants us to have purpose in life, no matter what we face in life, especially when it comes to time. These are the focus teachings we've sort of zeroed in on. And so in light of this, it's interesting that Paul, think about this, Paul is one of the hardest working men in the New Testament. He is a person who literally spreads the first century church around the world. He is talking to us about work in a multitude of places. And I think there's some credibility here for him. He's a guy who, who literally changed the world. And there's something valuable about what he teaches us, a person who is incredibly fruitful, incredibly productive with his life, but also managed to live a meaningful life for God, a purposeful life, a fruitful life for God. And he teaches us something here about rest and work. And please note when we say work, work encompasses a great many things. We're talking about how you live for the Lord, your labor for God in life, the way you care for your families. That's work. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Your vocation, where you, you know, practice your nine to five or whatever your version of a nine to five is. We said two weeks ago that pretty much everything in life requires work. It requires us to make proactive investments into to people, to places, or things. And so work sort of defines everything we do. And every person typically wants to feel a sense of meaning, a level of meaning in this area. We should want to anyways. Because if we don't get these teachings right, what happens is we're likely to have some joy taken from us as we are doing one of the things God has created us to do. And so throughout the centuries, many cultures have had different philosophies on the role and nature of work. Even today, if you talk to people around the globe, I've had the, you know, the privilege of being on six continents, and if you talk to people around the globe, excuse me, five continents, if you talk to people around the globe, they have different philosophies on work. We have different ways that we work, and we work differently, meaning some cultures work much more than others, some work much less than others. And so there's a great variance in how we understand work and rest, which is why we want to sort of apply, we want to apply the, the primary idea of work and rest from the Scripture. And when we speak of work, the American work ethic is one of the strongest in the world. That's one of the things that sort of makes us us. We tend to be year after year, if you read the studies, that works the most and rests the least. That's sort of the, the big gold trophy we get every year. We work a lot, we're very industrious people, and we often suffer from fatigue issues because of that. And we're not against hard work here, tell him, I'm telling you that. I just want you to know we want to find a balance here. And there's a good reason for this. In the DNA of our country, you'll find that this is sort of what makes us us. You're going to be hard-pressed to go to any early writings, any sort of foundational writings in our country that, that talk against this. So right from the very beginning, the Puritan work ethic, okay, as the, those folks came over on the Mayflower, right? They're coming over here, and they have an incredibly strong work ethic. It is, it is the beginning of America, work, at least America in the modern world. The writings of the founding fathers all shape this. There's lots of stuff for work. I'm going to share a few here in a moment. Even Jamestown, just south of the Mayflower, right, just south of the Puritans, folks were trying to figure out how to get rich by farming tobacco. So no matter where you go on the east coast of America, when we begin, people are saying, hey, if we work hard, we'll become something. 
That's the way we understand the work in our country, for a great many of us anyways. Now, let me share with you some things about the Founding Fathers, a handful of ideas. <clears throat> Benjamin Franklin, right, writes in his publication, just going to show you how central work is to us. In Poor Richard's Almanac, he writes this, a wide, widely read amongst the early American colonies. It's sort of like the Reader's Digest. Folks are picking this up and reading it. And he has a ton of things to say about working. And what's funny is, I've talked to a great many people. I actually sat in a seminary class one time where somebody referenced one of his writings as if it was a Bible verse, and it wasn't. It goes to show you sort of how, how conflated these things can be at times, right? He writes lots of things about work. Here are a few things. You've probably heard them, and I bet a great many of us maybe even live by them. God helps them that help... God helps them that help themselves. You ever hear that? Okay, that sounds really good, right? And there, I'm not saying there isn't some truth to that, but the nature of the cross teaches us something very different, right? The nature of the cross teaches us that God helps those who can't help themselves. We're not against helping yourself, but I'm saying kind of funny that I actually heard a guy say that in his class, and I thought, that is not in the Bible. That's uh, a problem with that anyways. God helps them that help themselves. How about this one? Early to bed and early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy. You've proven my point. You can go home and eat lunch now, right? Here's another one. Never leave that till tomorrow. Okay. There is no gain without pain. You guys were mumbling about that. Okay. And then this was one I'd never heard of, but it's an interesting one. Trouble springs from idleness and grievous toil from needless ease. And he goes on to say, a sleeping fox never catches a chicken. And the idea is that if your head's in the pillow all the time, if you're not thinking, if you're lazy, then what happens is the chicken runs away. You don't get the prize. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of these, you know, his teachings anyways. These are all really good and noble things. But I want to share a few things, some concerns as we move through this. I want to ask you this. Have some of these principles shaped the way you see work and rest? Being honest. You can answer this in your head. Do they sort of help you to, sh to frame how you work? Sometimes do you feel like maybe if these are left unchecked, here's where this can be dangerous. Maybe you're carving out like a meaningless existence in a job that doesn't matter. Maybe you're doing all this stuff, but the problem is, is you still don't feel worth or value in your work. Or you can't rest because your work is so dominant. Or maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum. I shared this with you a couple of weeks ago. This is sort of the world that I live in because I told you I love working. I always have and I love what I do. Do you feel in, uh, you're overworked, maybe, or really feel like you care about what you do, but it's, it's sort of dominant in your life, so dominant that you, you're happy in the fact that you're overworked? You sort of are like a functional workaholic. If so, no matter where you're approaching work and rest, this teaching can help you rethink the place of work and rest in your life and the busyness that it so often hands us. Remember, work is meant to, so, it's a utility that serves the world. We're supposed to own it, not have it own us. That's the challenge with most of these time teachings. A lot of the things we cede our freedom to in life, they then begin to rule us in a way that can be very unhealthy. Work was given to us so that we could flourish and we could serve and do amazing things. It wasn't given to us so that we could die early deaths and, and, learn, and not learn how to rest. That's not why God gave it to us. And so it's important that we recognize the value in work writings like this, but never let them trump God's ultimate work for our lives. Meaning we want these to be influencers, but not the dominant voice that shapes who we are and what we think about working. I mean, logically speaking, if you read Ben Franklin's stuff alone, if those were your five guiding verses in life, there is nothing in there about rest. And it's not hard to see why, based on some of these things we've shared, it can be very easy in our world to become a workaholic and then to celebrate that as success. Working hard is good. It becoming your God is not. And so the first step in being wise with your work and rest is knowing all good work, no matter what it is, really matters to God. This is what, what Paul is chipping away at in Ephesians. You know, he's contrasting unhealthy work. He's saying, listen, those of you who are stealing, those of you who are engaged in 
in work that is not noble. You should really stop that. He says, and you should do something good with your hands, something useful with your hands. And so he identifies a couple of layers of work. There can be work that's not good, unhealthy work, like work that's illegal, right? Then there can be work that really is good, useful and productive, but it's so strong in your life that it takes away the joy and the productivity of what work is meant to be. And the main truth in that Ephesians verse is four of two, first of, excuse me, it's twofold. The first is that it implies the norm for the Christian is to be working, doing something useful with your hands. He goes on to say that a mark of authentic Christianity is really living a, a productive life. It's engaging, supplementing, contributing to the world. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. God, in his infinite wisdom, is constantly shaping and refashioning the world. He's helping us to become like him. He's shaping us into his image. His work is fruitful and meaningful. And in a very real degree, our human work is meant to image the same thing. The second is that as we work and rest, we are supposed to be doing something useful or good. This is true for work and rest. We're to be engaging in a type of work that is honest before God and helpful to the society we live in. A type of rest that is noble in the same vein. You can't just apply this to your work and not your rest. For example, if you work 80 hours a week and then rest every night by drinking five bottles of wine, that's probably not useful. That will kill you, right? So there are even, there are even rhythms of rest that are not healthy for us if we don't get a bearing on this. So this work-rest teaching isn't new. God deems it important. He says honest and hard work, resting, it's an essential ingredient for us to flourish. We need both of these things in our life. And the backdrop to this truth is found in the very first pages of Genesis, which I have referenced every week because they're important. There we read about God himself working and resting to bring about the world. It is worth taking note of the fact that the first image we have of God is a good example of working and resting. It sets the pace for the rest of the scripture and our lives in Jesus today. It's also worth noting something about the chronology of the way he works and rests. What God does is he, he is creating and then the crown jewel of his creation is us. The thing he has the most love and favor for is us. Genesis 2.15 describes his actions like this. I'll just read it to you. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The fact that God does this in chapter 2 is an incredibly important fact. It isn't after the fall that God says you've got to work. It's before the fall that God says, Hey, work, work what I've given you. And here's why knowing the chronology of this is important. For some of us for some Christians especially, there's a great misunderstanding about what work is in our lives and how it pertains to creation and fall. There's a lot of people today that have a very incorrect but a common conclusion about work, and they think that work is a consequence of the fall. They've, they've got the chapters mixed up. They think what happened was, is, you know, God created the earth and us, and it was sort of like sandals in the Bahamas. That's what it was. And God said, here's an all-inclusive life, guys. Sit around, enjoy the world. Here's, you know, Here's a, I don't know, a pina colada, whatever you're into, right? That, that's what it was, some type of a first century or an ancient resort. God creates this world, and we sit there literally living in it, consuming it. But that's actually not what we read here. The story of creation and the role of work in our lives, we find that part of creation, part of God's work is us continuing to work the creation. And so there's this very unhealthy form of thinking that says work is a bad thing, and because of that, it's sort of a consequence of the fall. If man hadn't fallen, then we would just be living a life of rampant leisure in Jesus. That's not true. And seeing work as a consequence of the fall is a problem. It's very common in a lot of thinking, but it is really the furthest thing from the truth. 
On closer inspection of Genesis, it's clear God's original plan here is that we are in the cycle of work and rest. It is part of the way he created us before the fall. The rhythm of life is meant to get this balanced. And when we fell, what's interesting is that work does change. Here's where we need to nuance the idea that work is bad because it isn't bad. What I would say is work has the potential to now be bad. When we fell, the consequence was that the good work God set us apart to do on the earth for the first time ran the risk of becoming meaningless. It, be, it ran the risk of becoming abusive. It ran the risk of becoming a burden. It ran the risk of becoming disappointing and difficult. It isn't that the work in itself was bad. It's just that sin crept into the work. And now there's all these temptations and problems and challenges that really can come out of work that can pull us away from God. And so the bottom line is some Christians began to see their work in the world, their work in God's church, simply as an unfortunate price they have to pay to put a roof over their head if you're in the vocational world, or the idea of serving a body, you know, furthering God's mission, caring for our neighbors, loving one another in the body, all work. We start to see these things as optional. We start to see these things as, well, that's for somebody else to do, but not me. It's a very kind of nuanced understanding of creation and fall and work, how all these things relate together. They start to see work in general as a cruel utility that God has provided us to punish us rather than something God gives us that he's designed us to do. And he's designed us to have a fullness in this because our work is made in the image of God. And our goal is not to get rid of work. Our goal is not to stop resting. Our goal is to make sure that our work and our rest reflects the image of God. And that is why the first glimpse of the Bible, or in the Bible, that God gives us of himself is him being a very hard worker. He cares deeply about what he's doing and the people that he's doing it for. And that shapes every action he, he uh, practices in the scripture from there on out. And then he patterns our lives after this. So that's one faulty way of understanding work and rest, is thinking work is a bad thing, letting it become abusive in our lives. Others make a different mistake when it comes to work and rest. They make a distinction between the secular and the spiritual. And it's interesting. This is a, a, a concept I'm very familiar with, but over the past 20 years as I've interacted with it, it's sort of funny watching the this, this script flip on this a little bit. You know, when I first became a pastor, really took, I took my first church just shy of 20 years ago, it was funny. There was this weird view people had of pastors. Um, they sort of felt like we were doing, I don't want to say better work, but that there was some uniqueness about us. And I don't mean uniqueness like better, but I mean it was sort of like God sets apart men and women, right? God sets us as, as a pastor to do work. And God has folks working in the church office and all around the church. And those are the folks whom God has designed to do the work of the church, the, the spiritual side of things. And then I just come to church a couple times a week and then leave into my vocation and, and come back. They drew a hard line between what I like to call the secular and the spiritual. The spiritual stuff all happened here. And all the stuff that happens outside of this place is just, it's good stuff, but it's not spiritual stuff, meaning it's not stuff that matters deeply to Jesus. And there's a problem with that because what we do outside of this room actually really matters. In fact, the real work of the kingdom begins when we leave this room. There's a ton of work that takes place in this room. Don't get me wrong. And we really value, we have an ecclesiology here. We love the people of God. This matters to us. But I'm telling you, the people of God, look at your calendar. We spend 6.9 days out in our world, right? And about two to three hours a week here. And so it goes to show you that what you do when you leave this place matters substantially. And we can no longer create this divide. The urgency of the world and the needs that it has really should shape the way we work. We should have a kingdom ethic in our work. We should recognize that God has put every single one of you in a place that every other person in this room is probably never going to be in. 
And he's put specific people in your life in a specific place at a specific time. And your work really matters. Your, your care for those folks really matters. Your desire to pray for those folks, minister to those folks, and care for them in whatever ways God leads or provides, it really, really matters. So we can no longer sort of separate this. What I do out there matters too, because I'm only in this room three hours a week with you, give or take a little bit. Some of you are saying, this is my first time here. We're going to be in this room for three hours? Absolutely not, I promise. Easter, it'll be like three, but not today, okay? On the flip side of this, sometimes the urgency of our jobs causes people to see our work and mission of Jesus' kingdom as a secondary priority. Here's where there's an imbalance. We either don't value work when we leave this place, we don't see God's hand in it, or we get to the place where we so let our work outside of this place undermine the work that God has called us to do in the the people of God and the mission of Jesus. And as a result, we wind up saying things like this. You know, my job is the thing really keeping me from loving and serving God with all of my heart. If I just didn't have to work, unfortunate you know, byproduct of the fall, I'd be able to dedicate my whole life to God. And so if you see work in either of these ways, you're likely going to have a very restless heart. That's what this creates. It creates a busy heart. It creates, if you remember all those sort of analogies I've given in weeks past, you start separating God's presence from the significant areas of your life. In this case, your work and rest. While the whole Bible says God wants you to weave him into those things. And as a result, you just start adding things to your calendar, trying to work hard and rest well, as opposed to figuring out how to work and rest in everything you're doing. Creating sort of an idea where Jesus speaks into these things, as opposed to you just trying to layer stuff on your calendar or removing stuff erratically from your calendar. Logically speaking, if God shows us a balance between work and rest, and he has made us in his image, we have to strive for that balance. We will never be perfect in the balance, but boy, I'm telling you, there are places where we can be a lot less perfect than we should be. And when we begin to tip the scales of working and resting in unhealthy directions, there are going to be consequences. We'll either ultimately get busy and stressed out to the point where, you know, you know the, the, the science on this, excessive time, excessive stress, that leads to some really bad long-term health issues. That's one reality. Your body wasn't made to function like that. Or people sort of overcorrect and they, they live a life of leisure. They get so overworked that they sort of, they drive themselves to leisure. Or maybe in their life, leisure is work. That's really what they invest their time in. And the funny thing about leisure, rest, while God has provided it for us, is that there's an abuse on that side of the fence too. When you live for the, for the, for the glory of leisure, what happens is you're actually beginning to value the, the pleasure you value in life more than God's pleasure for your life. It's just an incredibly selfish way of saying, I love me more than I love God. That's what, it, that's what it means. Because pleasure is a word that's used in the Bible, and we're to live for the pleasure of God. What that simply means is we're supposed to value the things God values. And when we stop valuing contributing to the world we live in, working well, working hard, resting well, what happens is we start to value our own personal pleasure more than we do the God who has created us, and it creates an imbalance in the other direction. And this sort of leads me to the second truth I want to share with you this morning. I'll be brief, but I really want to be sort of pointed in these ideas. If you want to properly deal with busyness, this is sort of what my hope is. If you want to get a balance in these two categories, you want to properly deal with a time issue, a business issue, God calls you to walk with balance in your work and rest. That's what he is asking us to do. That's what he's calling us out into. Now, I want to share with you a couple of signs that might indicate you have an imbalance of work and rest in your life. And these are not original ideas. They're certainly not new, but they're ideas that I uh, read from a pastor that I really value named Tim Chester. 
And he gives us three categories, really good categories, to sort of assess our lives under. And they'll be behind me. I, I pray you would write these down, think about them this week as you move out of here, uh, maybe meditate on them and ask God to speak into whether or not you're in one of these categories. Because the way to strike balance in your life is to recognize first where there might be imbalances. And so, generally speaking, there are three categories we tend to drift in. And the first one is, I think, the more common one in our world. You live a lifestyle that has a work-centered ethic. What that means is, at the center of your life is not Jesus shaping your work. At the center of your life is your work, and your work is shaping Jesus. Your work is shaping your family. Your work is shaping everything else. That's an idol, right? That's where we take a really good thing God has given us, work, and we start to worship it in a way that is a really bad thing. Now, generally speaking, this way of living tends to create a person who feels that working is the most important thing you can do in life. And resting, here's why this person never rests. Resting is just an excuse to not be productive. You've heard this statement, oh, I'll sleep when I die, right? I didn't even make that, I didn't even make that up. It's not even in the almanac of poor Richard, right? But it's a, it's a common kind of colloquialism we have here. Essentially, this person believes work is central to life and resting is peripheral, somewhat of a luxury of sorts. Try not sleeping for three days and see how that works out. See how well you work if you don't rest your body like that. This lifestyle is one of the main reasons people have this time issue, this busyness problem, because it entirely drives a person's good work for all the wrong reasons. This is essentially like Ben Franklin's writings without any counterbalance ever. And they see their work, it's a very good reason usually, they see their work as a substantial contribution to their society, to whomever they're working for or on behalf of. They feel what they're doing defines them. That's what starts to become the problem here. And with it or without it, they are less a person than they should be. And the problem with that is, is if you've ever lost a job or had to move jobs, you know if your identity is solely rooted in a job, that identity is not permanent. And so there are some, some obvious just fallacies in believing this way. But nonetheless, it's very tempting to believe this way, and it's very easy to drift in this category. Others lead a work-centered lifestyle because they're stuck in the upgrading my life rut. And I've talked about this before. They see work as a means to get ahead in life. Every, everything they do is to get something bigger or better or, or nicer. And they see these things as, as getting to the next level in life, continuing to establish your, your legacy here on earth. We're not against nice things or houses or cars. I'm just saying if that is what matters most to you, then it is likely that Jesus matters less. These are not always bad things. However, whenever I talk about the idle structures of our hearts, the things that really can pull us away from God, I always remind us that when good things become ultimate things, then they become bad things. So if your main goal in life is to upgrade in all areas, then what that means is you're more concerned with pursuing self than you are Christ at that point, very likely. Or if, you're, if your drive is work, 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 that is a problem. It's the ultimate thing in your life right now, and Jesus is less valuable. In that case, your work becomes a bit of a tyrant. And when you believe like this, when, you're, when there's an imbalance in a work-centered ethic, what happens is the work in your life becomes a tyrant. And you are now subjugated to the tyranny of the urgent. You are in a complete reactionary mode, serving work. Like it or not, our culture has made this type of living a virtue. Busyness is a virtue. And it is at times seen as a mark of being accomplished. Always having your hand in something can be seen as accomplishment in life. But I want to tell you, when we apply Jesus' wisdom to this, this is not always the case. Sometimes it's a cloak hiding a person, a, a deep attitude of the heart that's really counterproductive in more significant but less visible areas of life. I'll give you an example of this. 
you know, I read a lot of business. I'm into that. I always have been. On the side of, um, of church planning and theology and pursuing God, I, I find a lot of interesting thought is de- developed in the business world. Not everything I agree with, but there's some interesting principles there. And I read something years ago about this very thing happening. Uh, I, and then I was, what was kind of neat about it was I actually was meeting with a business person who echoed the same sentiment in a, in a personal story that took place in their workplace. And this was sort of a corroboration that this isn't just a Christian thing. Time, time is a people thing. And he said that they had an issue with productivity in their workplace. And here's what he told me. He said, I oversee a sales team. And if you know anything about sales, salespeople have monthly quotas to meet. That's the world revolves around what you're selling. And after a couple of months of slumping sales, the higher ups got on him and said, your, your sales are slumping. You've got to figure out what's going on in the office. And so he began a, a sort of an analytical process. And he started talking to all of his salespeople. And every single person was highlighting the same reason for why they were not selling products. They said they've got a lot of administrative stuff going on. There's a lot of busy work going on. There's a, there's a lot of administrative things that are keeping us from actually you know, making money for the company. And so we heard administrative issues. And he took his, his investigation to a deeper level. He started looking at all the administrative issues. And what was funny is, is after interviewing employees, a very clear determination came out. He said what was ironic was the volume of time that people were emailing. He said what happened was is emailing was the administrative issue. Folks had different ways of viewing it. But at the end of the day, every single person was spending inordinate amounts of time at their computer emailing people about sales, making sales a second-tier priority. Lots of talk about sales, lots of communication about sales, but getting out of the office and going and selling stuff wasn't happening. And I thought, what an irony here, right? The team, the sales team, has a time management issue. Essentially, they are working so hard, they are so busy doing things that revolve around the center of their job, selling stuff, that it actually caused them to stop selling stuff. Perfect example of how a work-centered ethic oftentimes can blind us because we start neglecting other significant areas of our life. Even in the work, it's sort of like you're, you're working very hard, but you've lost sight of the vision or the mission or what's driving the actual work. This is again called living in the tyranny of the urgent. And what it means is Jesus is not at the center of your life. It creates an imbalance. And if you function like this, it is very likely going to fuel the second imbalance I want to talk to you about. Work-centered ethic, no good. A Jesus-centered ethic that prescribes uh, an idea to your work matters. I promise you will work hard if Jesus is at the center of your life. He will not permit you not to. But you will work well and balanced if he's driving that train. If he's not driving that train, we drift into the second issue. You live a lifestyle where you practice binge resting. Now, binge resting is interesting. I speak sort of as a, not just a member of the club, but as the president of it. My 30s, they were, they were defined by binge resting. And I used to brag about it. I'd say like, yeah, you know, the way I work is I'm like zero or 100. And I thought that was good until everything started aching when I turned 41, right? And you start realizing like your body doesn't care about your your cool little sayings about zero and 100. It needs to sleep and it needs to rest and you need protein and vegetables and all this other stuff, right? One of the byproducts of a work-centered lifestyle is that at some point your body reminds you, hey, I'm gonna rest with or without your permission. Like you've been made to rest and, and it's just gonna happen. Like you can either tell me when to rest or I'm just gonna tell you it's time to rest. And at some point what happens is your body just starts collapsing. It breaks down because it cannot deal with the pressure of that anymore. And the collapse looks different for all of us. For some people, they just check out of life for a while. They start putting up noticeable walls. They start trying to disconnect themselves from people. They go dark. 
like physically and maybe even technically. That's a whole new thing now, right? Technologically, we go dark. You're like, hey, I was going to send a Facebook message to my friend, but they're not on Facebook anymore. Where'd they go? And then you text them, you know, because we have 19 ways of communicating with people. <clears throat> and then they respond, well, I deleted my Facebook page because I just can't, I can't be around people anymore. And then six weeks later, their Facebook page is back up again, right? They go dark for a bit, zero, and then back to 100. They reactivate it. Or they change their cell phone number. This is, I've literally had this happen to me. They go dark. They just say, I got to check out. Or maybe if you're a little more balanced in life, you start using those sick days at work, not not because you're sick, but because you just got to rest. Like, you, it's sort of like not resting has created a sickness. You can't be around people anymore. You need a break. It's a different kind of sickness. I've seen people bury themselves in movies because it creates an, like another world. I've seen this really strong with video games. Again, not against movies or video games. Fictional reading, these types of things, creates like a euphoric escape for them. They, they punch out of life and go to these vicarious places where they virtually live for a season in order to be able to get back into the real world. Right or wrong, okay, what I want to say about this is that we have a significant challenge when it comes to balancing work and rest in the world that we live in. Well, I shared with you earlier that every culture has a different understanding of work, generally speaking. The general construct for work in America actually supports these categories. Think about this. For the average person, right, if you have a full-time job, you're going to work how many weeks a year? 50, and then you're going to get, after five years, two weeks of vacation, right? I'm not for uh, not working hard. I'm just saying everything we do is sort of designed like this. You work, if you're in a nine to five, five days or so, and then you're supposed to get two days off. The construct is set up to say you work a lot and then rest sort of a little. And what I'm saying is, is we need to learn to have work and rest sort of commingle a little more deeply. Because some of us don't even get the two days off a week, and some of us don't even get the two weeks of vacation. So if the system doesn't provide you a way to work and rest well, then how do you deal with that? You can't just say, well, I don't get any vacation time or I don't get the weekends off. You have to figure out a way to work and rest. So the problem with binge resting is it's never enough to solve the problem. It's never enough to make your busyness go away. It's never enough to rest your heart or your mind. It becomes a coping tool. It's, it's you work a cycle, you binge rest to get to the next work cycle. And over time, that tool will break down. And so when you think of Jesus, Jesus' mission, his church, when you think of your natural spheres of influence, when you think of the way you deal with your family, your vocation, I, I have this image in my head. If your life sort of looks like a locomotive, violently jerking. You ever seen a locomotive lock the brakes up? Or if you've ever been sort of at the, one of the, uh, the railroad crossings here in Florida, we still have those, where it's moving slowly and it's sort of starting and stopping. If your life looks like a jerking locomotive, one day you're in, the next day you're out, you're moving forward, but then you're stopped. You're, you're uh, stressed one day, but rested the next. All of this can be a really strong sign of binging. It can be a really st strong sign of an imbalance between work and rest. And that is a symptom of a much deeper heart issue. It means that Jesus is likely not at the center of your life, if an unhealthy view of work and rest is. So you want to be careful. We don't all get linear hours to rest in our world anymore. But I want to encourage you, sometimes just a couple of minutes a day and a couple of hours a week, even if you don't get them in order, is really helpful. I will tell you what has been most helpful for me, and this started with my community group about six months ago. We challenged each other. We, we started reading through the Bible app, and the Bible app provides a verse a day for us to read and meditate on. And I, it's funny, like, how, how helpful that's been. I'm not saying I wasn't reading the Bible. I'm just saying... What a difference it made when we challenged each other to make a concrete space, just a couple of minutes a day, to rest in God. How that starts shaping what you do. And the same is true with our work. It might just be that you need 30 minutes in an evening. If, if maybe you don't even get that, whatever it is, start 
by resting your mind and your heart, asking God to provide that space. Don't get to the place where you have to rest. Get to the place where you, you recognize the value of resting and let God shape those categories. The last category I want to share with you is this. There's also a lifestyle defined by a leisure-centered ethic. So we can work too much. We can binge rest, which is the byproduct of work. And then there's the other side of the fence where these folks don't need to binge rest because all they do is rest, right? This is, this is essentially a leisure-centered ethic. And this way of living is growing in popularity in our culture. And if you want my opinion of why I think that is the case, it's because workaholism has been valued for a very long time. And I think what's happening is, is the pendulum's going in the other direction. It's a bit of a knee-jerk reaction to the work-centered ethic. And although it's kind of become sort of, um, in some senses I would say, maybe somewhat cool to think this way, it's just as destructive to a work-centered ethic. And it's equally exploitive. We don't want to overcorrect the pendulum. We want to center it. And here's why I think this is a dangerous way of living. Living a life of leisure is only possible when you do it at the expense of another person. Leisure, mo like for example, if you go on vacation in an office, you know how this is. For the most part, you've got to pick up somebody else's slack. And you do that because at some point your vacation pops up, right? That's sort of a healthy example of, of leisure balancing out work. Sometimes we do have to take one for the team. It's just part of life. But it can be very detrimental when we live solely in a leisure ethic. Because what it does is we then get comfortable taking advantage of other people like this. And this is going to be especially true when you are part of any community. Like a workplace is a community of people. Your family is a community of people. Our church is a community of people. It tends to sort of compound itself. And I learned this firsthand. I shared this story with you a few years ago, but it's one that indelibly, indelibly etched this reality in my mind. When I was in seminary, I had a class called Christian Scriptures, Introduction to the Christian Scriptures. And the class was interesting. It chronicled, like all of these English translations we have today, it chronicled how the Bible became the Bible and how it was translated and who did it. It was, it was fascinating to me. It was like a history lesson, lesson about the Bible for 12 weeks. And our final, which is very common in my degree, we had a lot of oral finals, meaning we had to write papers and then defend them like amongst our peers. And for the first time, we were assigned a group project which was sort of weird. I was like, group projects? Like, this is third grade stuff. Like, are you going to be pouring sand into vials and doing science projects? But nonetheless, I told my professor on the front end that I was always concerned about group projects because groups can be very finicky. You can get a great one or a really bad one. And God, in his infinite wisdom and sense of humor, gave me, at that point, a really bad one. I had four of the people in my group. It was, it was very hard. We sat down. I'll never forget the first day we were assigned the NIV. And we sat down and talked about what we were going to do. And everybody pretty much said they weren't going to do anything. And I, I, I got a, could be a pretty anxious person at times. So I got to thinking, we can't let this happen. And what I did is, in preparation, I studied all of my stuff. And then I studied all of their stuff. Just thinking in case, just in case. Because I was not leaving that class with a seat. And when we got to the actual meeting in front of our whole class and a professor, my fruit paid off. I, it was really sad. Like We had all of these questions being, bombard, we were being bombarded by them, and nobody was answering them. And then after like the third question, I just started answering all of the questions. I, please hear me. There's no bragging here. I'm just wired that way. Like My dad taught me never to drop balls, and that's why I don't sleep at night anymore because of it. Right? Uh, I was answering all these questions. And afterwards, the class ended, and we got our grades, and we got an A on that. But I went to my professor's office after the class and I said, I just want you to know that this was a really challenging final because the, the group did not participate in this. 
And there were other groups who had the same issues. And what he told me was interesting. He said, well, this is designed so that you can learn how to like, lead a church staff one day. In other words, he was saying, we're trying to prepare you for the day where you work with four or five other super lazy people who don't want to work hard on your job. And, uh, and I was like, well, maybe there's a better way. Like, I understood where he, where he was going. But I said, I'd like to think that if this was, this was somebody's predominant work rhythm, they probably wouldn't be working in that environment anymore. Like, you might even fire them or, you know, put them on an improvement plan. So it was funny. That, that whole thing showed me something. In that environment, uh, totally unhealthy. Like, you can get away with that if other people start picking up your slack. And that's what's the challenge about this is if you think about any family, the reason a leisure-centered lifestyle like this is such a problem is because it's only made okay by you exploiting another person. You're okay with saying, I know you'll do it. That's why I won't. And that is not the image we have of God in the very origins of the scripture. Any community, if you've got a lazy sibling in the home, somebody's got to pick that slack up. If you've got a spouse who doesn't care, somebody's got to pick that, slap up, uh, that slack up. If you care about what you're doing, even in the church this is true. There's all kinds of things that go on in a church body. And if everybody decided they didn't want to serve, we wouldn't have a church anymore. That's just what would happen. You know, there's this old stat, I've shared it with you before, that in most churches, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And by the grace of God, that has never been our story. We have an uh, incredibly hard work culture here. It's, it's amazing we are still doing this in a portable theater after eight years. Though our hope is that we don't do this for another eight years in a portable theater. But what I want to say is there are likely some of you here today who maybe are not even engaged in this. And I want to challenge you to think about what percentage you fall into. Think about your work in this place. Think about your work in your life. Think about your work with your family and ask yourself, are you really serving God well in all you do in, the, in your church family with your time, your talents, and your treasures? Are you using your gifts for his goodness and his glory? In your workplace, are you a light for the people that need to see it? Don't build your life on the back of somebody else's faithfulness. That's what a leisure-centered ethic teaches us not to do. And so the solution to this is having a Christ-centered work ethic. It's letting Jesus' wisdom, his inputs, speak into everything we do. And so if you've identified an imbalance here today in your work and your rest, know there is hope. None of us get this perfect, ever. But there can be places where we are really out of sorts, and we're trying to avoid that. We're all in this boat together, so let's sail in it together. The way you begin this is by asking God to identify the lies you're believing about your life and then pursuing a gospel truth according to Jesus to correct it. So if you think you're defined by your work, you need to know, no, you're defined by Jesus. That's what the Bible says. Your identity is now in him. And that identity will put a label on your work that will help you to thrive in it and be successful. Because neither your work or your leisure or your binge resting will ever bring, here's the irony of this, it will never bring to us what we think it will bring to us. But we often pursue them as if they will. They are at best going to create a temporal season of fulfillment that will eventually compound the problems we're trying to get rid of. So this is an exercise in retraining our hearts to understand that work and rest matter, but they have to be based on the truth of God. We need an ethic that defines the other ethics. We need Jesus to speak into this stuff. We've got to ask ourselves, are we honoring God in what we do? Because if we're not, we're going to end up in one of the camps we spoke about today. And Jesus went to the cross so we didn't have to live in these camps. He went to the cross so that he could define our camps. And we could have productivity and fruitfulness and meaning and purpose and value and worth in everything we do. I mean everything we do, whether you're bagging groceries at Walmart or you're the president of the United States. And anything we do, if it's good work, God wants us to succeed in that. He wants us to flourish in that. But we will not if we, if we serve lesser gods in these areas. And so I leave you this Sunday as I do every other Sunday. Ask yourself, when it comes to how you work and how you rest, over this brief time of response we're about to have and this time you'll have throughout the week, ask yourself, what is God saying to you about your work? And what is he saying to you about your rest? What will you do with those things that he tells you after you leave this place? Pray with me.
Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for, for being a God who not only tells us things, you know, your scripture is, is your revelation. It's you telling us about you. I'm thankful that in this area, God, you've given us a, a litany of people to look to who have struggled in the same way, who have succeeded in the same way, and you've given us ultimately you. You've given us the greatest example of what it means to work hard and rest well. And so I pray that as we leave this place today, nothing less than what you have said and done would drive how we understand our work and our rest. And I pray that we would really, truly, if we are without peace in these areas, find it. I pray that where we need correction, we know you are a good God, a gracious God. Be gentle with us. But I pray, Lord, we would respond. And I pray, Lord, in these areas where those of us are strong, there are people here who do balance this well. It is my prayer that we would see those folks be burdened to contribute and invest into the lives of others who are still learning this kingdom lesson. I pray no matter where we are coming to you right now, wherever we are coming from, that you would level the playing field and allow us to honestly and humbly hear from you now during these brief moments we have in quiet. In the name of Jesus, we pray all this. Amen.